Okay, let's continue. Diabetes. Oh, Mike doesn't have his remote control. All right. Now, when it comes to insulin administration, a lot of different things have been tried over the years because of the aversion to injections that most people have. Uh, and before they came up with pumps that kind of continuously keep you from having to keep sticking yourself multiple times through the day, uh, they tried different things, different combinations of trying to give a single dose insulin, like combining long acting with short acting and hoping that that would work through the, through the day. They tried maybe just two, like one in the morning and one at night. None of them really worked well enough because there was too many periods where people would get hyperglycemic. So it still comes down to that most everybody needs to have three to four injections a day if they're injecting themselves. Now, if you have a pump, as you, as, as you heard, you get a, you get a more continuous uh, infusion of, of insulin as a, as a with, uh, like a background rate. So generally it's going to be the most common thing is to do it at meals and at the hour, hour of sleep. Uh, you can see that the, it was usually a combination of regular insulin and in the past you'd see, see more of the NPH, lente or ultra lente. Nowadays it tends to be Humalog and or, and or Humulin and then the Lantus uh, at night. There's also algorithms. I told you about the correction factors that are based on your pre-meal blood glucose and how much you eat. That seems to be the way it works. There's also little, uh, sometimes there's little things. If you have a hyperglycemic inc incident, they can give you, um, uh, they might set up a little algorithm saying if you're this much, then just give this much, this many units of regular. These are just examples. These aren't, these aren't cut in stone. There just might be an example. Although generally what you see is, is, a, is a correction factor, uh, a, little for, a little formula. Uh, and for those of you who, who have type 1 diabetes, if I say anything that's crazy or, or is wrong or you, you want to add, chime in, please, please don't hesitate. Okay, lifestyle changes. Uh, having, having diabetes, and a lot of this, you know, where with all the insulin stuff was mostly referring to people with type 1 and those with type 2 who have to take insulin. Uh, a lot of these things also will affect both type 1 and, and type 2. So issues of nutrition, exercise, uh, how it affects your family, social situations uh, can be true for, for type 1, type 2, probably affect type 1 uh, more so. Um, we have to look at when insulin works, how quickly it works, and when you eat. So if, again, if you're taking the regular insulin, remember that it doesn't start working right away. It begins to, to work within 30 minutes to an hour after you've eaten. So that means you take it just before you eat. So then you eat, and, the, and then as your blood glucose is coming in, uh, up, the, the insulin, the available insulin, is also there to meet it. And so you can you can use it. Um, so so the timing of the insulin with the eating is very important. Um, the other and the and what we often use is a more rat is the more rapid acting when you take it if you take it after you've eaten when you when with nowadays when you take uh, the dosing that's figured out after meals because based on how many carbs I eat then you're more likely to use the rapid acting the Lispro because 
<coughs> excuse me, because you want it to act right away because that blood glucose is already rising at that point. Um, the diet it, situation seems to have also changed. You know, in the past, there was, there was very, very strict diet uh, rules that people would make out whole menus on what you could eat, what you couldn't eat. Uh, now they just are, are, seem to be moving away from a lot of that and saying, uh, try to restrict the fat to less than 30% of your calories. Try, try to limit the amount of straight sugars that you're, that you're eating. It's good advice for everybody, actually. You don't have to have diabetes in order to, be, to eat a good a good diet. Uh, they also go in with, when you're looking at diabetic diets, what they're really looking at is the carbs that you're eating. And so they usually use it in units of 15. So they round things off rather than trying to get into the exact number of, of grams of carbs that you have. They'll, they'll take um, what you eat and then just round it in units of 15, 30, 45, 60, um, what comes next? 75, 75, 90. So you've got, so you have the, uh, by, by looking at that way, you can then, it, it makes it easier to do, the, to do the calculations. And so there's little exchange lists that will, that will actually say for this portion, uh, it's, it counts as a one exchange, and by an exchange, they mean 15, 15 grams of, of carbs. Uh, exercise with type 1 diabetes. There's really no restrictions if your blood glucose is less than less than 240. Um, In fact, exercise is recommended uh, when you have type, type 1 diabetes. Now, if you're going to be a real athlete, you have to be a little more careful about the amount of insulin that you need. And if you are active, generally you're going to need less insulin. It seems to improve the ability for the insulin to carry glucose into the cells, and you tend to seem to need less. Because I, the reason seems to be is that your pancreas, in most cases, still pr will produce tiny, tiny amounts of insulin. And when you exercise, that seems to help stimulate um, some of that. Uh, so one thing that is recommended if you are doing self-injections and uh, let's say you're uh, weight lifting weights, then you might not want to use your arms. If you're running, you might not want to be using your legs. So they say sometimes use a non, uh, the, non the, the limb that's not being used for the athletic activity if that's possible. Um, you do need, may, may need to monitor yourself a little bit more, particularly as you're beginning, if you're beginning to exercise more. So if you're, if you're a teenager joining a sports team and you're used to just monitoring yourself uh, just before meals, you might want to be monitoring yourself during the um, training uh, that you're doing to see how your blood glucose is doing. If it's getting too low, or, uh, then you, you know what to, that you need to eat something. Uh, one of the other benefits is uh, also high-density lipoproteins improves with exercise, and of course that's true for, for all of us. Decrease in total cholesterol and triglycerides, and again, that's true for, for everybody, um, but, it, but it seems to um, be something to, to just to remind folks that uh, just because you have uh, diabetes doesn't mean you can't be on a sports team. You're not, restricted. you're not restricted from that. Now, if you're unmanageable, if you're really having trouble, you're hyperglycemic and then having big hypoglycemic episodes and you're having a real hard time managing it, then being on the sports team may not be a good idea until you get a good, get a good handle on it. And sometimes that happens early in the diagnosis um, for, for teenagers. 
but generally there's nothing that would keep them off of a, off of a sports team. Uh, family teaching, when you have kids, uh, the other thing is that, well, you, we teach the children at their developmental level how to take care of themselves. People in the family need to know all these things that we talked about, all the things about diet, monitoring, giving the injection. So we end up with, if you have a six-year-old, we tend to do most of the teaching with the parent. And with the child, we're just trying to help them understand at a very basic level what's, what's happening. When you have kids that are more in the eight, eight nine, or 10-year range, then you're teaching both. So you're teaching the kids how to do things, and then you're also teaching the parents because somebody, somebody needs to know. I've also seen some situations where you have kids that get diagnosed that are in very bad family situations and there really isn't a reliable caregiver at home. You, we have to figure out then, well, who, who is reliable? There has to be some kind of reliable adult, if they, especially when you're talking about um, a six or a seven-year-old. Well, no matter how smart that kid is, he or she may not be able to um, be able to do all the things that are required for monitoring, drawing up, storing, obtaining the, the insulin, uh, sterile technique, all that stuff is going to be a little difficult for the, for the younger ones. And I've seen situations where the kids end up having to be very good at monitoring themselves and taking care of themselves because there isn't really a reliable adult in the, in the family. So keep, keep that in mind. Another thing is that there's a lot to learn. And not everybody has the capacity to learn all this stuff. Please keep in mind that you guys have had pathophysiology and you've had nutrition courses. And so you already have a big head start. So when you're learning this stuff or, or reading about it, you already know a lot about, uh, about this. But for the average person, this is the first time they may have ever heard of it. And so it's a lot to assimilate in a short period of time. And keep in mind that whole shock of the lifestyle change, the idea of a chronic illness, the idea that things are going to be different, um, that's very hard on families. And so they're having to learn this while also learning to accept and adjust to this change in their, in their child. Uh, by nine or ten, uh, you really sh are, are, should be capable of giving yourself self injections. And those kids, and those of you who've been to the to the schools, have seen that that uh, the kids, you know, once they're once they're in about third or fourth grade, are pretty good at coming in giving themselves their own own injections. I've seen younger, I've seen younger kids do it, but it really depends on their own how cool the kid is about about this and how smart they are, how willing they are um, to do it. Uh, this is a little, these um, bears are used actually as part of, part of teaching. They were, were with the younger kids, they use, they give the kid the bear and the bear has diabetes and they, and they direct a lot of the teaching with the bear and then the child then teaches the bear about care and it's kind of a way to see uh, how, how much they've learned. Uh, medical alert bracelets. If you're, if you're particularly, if you're going to, if you become um, hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic, somebody may not recognize what's what's wrong with you, uh, and you should have something on your person that uh, identifies you uh, as such. And you can see that 
that uh, with the medic alert bracelet it is something where it can be as simple as just saying I have diabetes or to this one where on the back which gives you actually some instructions about what to do. If, if, uh, for those of you who have type 1, do you carry some, something on you? Do you keep anything on you? You do? You have a little bracelet? Good. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. yeah. So it's, and because um, if you were, uh, had too much insulin by mistake, you could get, become hypo, hypoglycemic. Nobody would, uh, may, not, may not know what's uh, going on with you. And hypoglycemia is more dangerous than hyperglycemia. Hypoglycemia can be fatal. Hyperglycemia has long-term problems, but it's generally not going to be as fatal. It has a much less chance of being coming, becoming um, fatal. Um, the social aspects with, uh, with t younger kids, a lot of it is the injections. You know that a lot of kids are very afraid. The one thing they're most afraid about going to the doctor is, is getting injections, getting needles. I know like a lot of kids just getting a regular examination, they get very frightened because they still associate the vaccinations. Kids get so many vaccinations, uh, and that's what they associate f um, often medical folks with. And, th and so here we then come along and say, uh, you've got a disease and we don't have a pill for you, we have to inject you not just once, but four times a day. So this becomes very, very frightening, and sometimes this becomes, and of course, checking, getting, drawing the blood too. So it's not just the injection of the, of the insulin, which is relatively painless compared to getting the, the, the blood out. So it's, so it's multiplied. So you're talking about eight times a day getting something stuck into your, into your skin. Um, and so it becomes, it becomes a lot harder to accept it because particularly the younger you are, the less likely you are to understand this concept of blood glucose and insulin and, and why do I have to do this. It's, a, it's, it's a, a, a lot more difficult to understand when you're still in concrete operations. Uh, and so for, so for younger kids, uh, the, the fear of injections and just understanding what's happening is, is difficult. When we get adolescents, here's the big problem. Adolescents want to be just like every, every, all their friends. We want to be, uh, we don't want to be different. We want to blend in. We don't want to, we don't want to stand out. And yet here you are in the cafeteria and all your friends are seeing how much Mountain Dew they can chug in one uh, minute and you really sh can't do that unless it's diet Mountain Dew. But <laughs> so, you're, so there's a lot of, you know, the kids go to the movies and they're eating giant boxes of raisinets and you really can't do that. So you start to feel uh, different and um, some kids have a harder time uh, accepting that. Uh, depending on their friends, how much peer pressure they put on them to, um, to eat and, and, and try to do what everybody else is doing um, can, ma can make a difference. The other thing, as I mentioned, as you get older, as you go through puberty, just your ability to control your blood glucose is changing because hormones changing, growth hormone, uh, all the other growth that you're going through affects the amount of insulin that you need during a day. So now you're, here, now you're in a situation where your where your needs are changing, and so it becomes harder. It becomes harder to to manage. And the other thing that happens a lot is denial. Uh, very often, we will see kids and coming into the hospital uh, every three months, almost like a almost like clockwork, coming into the hospital with diabetic diabetic ketoacidosis because they're not managing themselves. 
they're not taking their insulin, they're eating whatever they want, they sort of take their insulin when they remember, they're not really measuring, they're not, they're not doing the correction factors, they might just give themselves a little bit every once in a while, they end up in, D, they end up in DKA, end up in the ICU. And every, so we fix them up, we give them their insulin, get them hydrated, send them back out, and three months later they're, they're back in. When you talk to them, what you find out is a lot of them just don't like the idea of having diabetes. And so they kind of, you, you sort of get in the idea, well, if I don't think about it, if I just go ahead and live my life, then it'll go away. And then they, that works for a while until they get back into DKA. The other thing is with, with family, with social aspects, is with the parents, is sometimes there's a lot of guilt involved, particularly when a child is at, at, right at diagnosis. The signs, the three Ps were there. What were the three Ps? I don't have a slide for that. What are the three Ps? Polydipsia, which is what? Thirst. Polyphagia, which is eating and polyuria, which is peeing. So you have, uh, and what happens is, and I, talk, I told you about, you know, the story about my, my cousin, and that's a common story. And a lot of parents feel guilty because they say, well, I, why didn't I recognize it? Why didn't I take him to the ER right away and all of that? And so they sometimes feel, feel bad about that. Uh, so, and parents are, and there's some parents that are deathly afraid of needles. You know, I've seen, I've seen uh, I was in the Air Force and I saw big hulking guys that you never think you would practically faint when I pull out a needle for their, for their annual vaccinations. Um, it's, it's a lot of people are very afraid of them and then they project those fears onto their, onto their kids. And I've also seen parents who are in denial. They just don't want to deal with it. This is too much trouble. I've got too much else going on in my life. This is too much stress and they just don't want to deal with it. And so they, so they go into denial, and they don't pressure the child to monitor themselves. They don't pressure the child to, to, uh, to do the correction factor. They think it's too complicated, and they just don't, so they just don't bother. And so even though the kid might be capable of doing it, there's no support at home. There's nobody behind them to do it. We've seen some, some of those, some of you were with me at the high schools. I might, you may have remembered there were some, some kids who had parents who also had diabetes, and the parents were no good at managing themselves. And lo and behold, the teenager wasn't very good either. Come on. There we go. Uh, these are some websites to look at, and I really recommend that if you're, if you're working with anybody with diabetes to take a look at some of the websites, particularly those, a lot of them are aimed towards the, the person with the disease, and there's a lot of forums on there, and a lot of them are divided up into things for, for, for kids with it, teenagers, um, parents, uh, nurses. They have, they have professional uh, areas on there where, so you can get the latest information. Um, the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation has great section on, under professionals for the latest research that's being done. And I was just looking at that the other day, and they were talking about this use of antibodies early in diagnosis as a way to counteract some of the autoimmune responses. And they're, they're, they're actually in trials right now that, that are looking to be very, very promising. Um, this insulin pumper site is good because it has a lot of things about the... Um, how to how you live with the insulin pump and and using it and the advantages and disadvantages of different models are discussed and and things like that. Um, 
this children with diabetes theory, you see they have things on, you know, food recipes that gives you ideas for things that you can make that, that uh, still taste good, maybe with less uh, simple carbohydrates in them. Uh, and, and there's chat rooms in there for, for different, different types of people to communicate. Very good to, to do some lurking in there and see, what's, see what some of the discussions are. Particularly if you're, if you're planning any projects or doing any things with, with, uh, with groups, it's a good idea to find out what's there. This is a government site. This is a very, this is a very good um, URL to, to, to try. It's a long, complicated name, the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. It's at NIH. Um, but they also, it's kind of a national clearinghouse for a lot of the research that's involved with diabetes. Um, and there is links to the to the research there. It's all free. It's all um, it's not copyrightable. So you have you have uh, free access to use any of the information you you find on that on that site. It's it's a, it, this is not this site isn't really aimed towards the um, patient. This this site is really aimed to the provider. All right, complication prevention. All right, now here's, we're going to go through then all of the major complications of, of having diabetes. Now, what we're talking about here is type 2 and type 1 diabetes. Um, a lot of these are, uh, will, you will see in either form of diabetes. They're all a result generally of not managing your glucose and, and getting into hyperglycemic states too often. The first one, the hypoglycemia, is more common uh, with um, type, type 1 diabetes because you have, you didn't, you have, you've taken in, on insulin, but you, but you haven't eaten. So you have these side effects. People might seem nervous, get a little pallor, sweating, complain of headache, and then you see them often um, look like they're, sometimes they might, you might see an elderly person, you might mistake them for having a stroke. Um, this happened to me in church once, somebody right in front of me, a lady, just, she's kind of slumped over, and when I t tried to talk to her, she, the words were slurring. My first thought was she was having a stroke. And then her husband said that she didn't eat breakfast. And then when he, as soon as he said that, I knew that it was, he was talking about somebody who had, had diabetes. Um, what we did for her was give her a simple sugar. We got her, uh, went into the kitchen and got her a glass of orange juice. Within a minute... Her, she came, her, her eyes became clear, she, her, her voice, her, her, uh, she was able to talk clearly, and she was able to um, really fully, fully recover quite, quite quickly. However, do keep in mind here that hypoglycemia, if untreated, can result in death. We need, you need to have a certain amount of, of um, uh, glucose in your in your bloodstream for uh, for you to survive, and if you get too much insulin, you can die. So the, you have to be very careful about uh, the the doses of insulin that are ordered. Make sure that you're giving only what is ordered. Make sure that you understand that if it says you're giving one unit, not ten units, you got to know how to do your math. Critic, very very um, critical. Um, and there have been patients who have died in hospitals because nurses didn't know how to do the calculations and have given too much 
too much insulin uh, to people. Um, some other signs where people, the, their breathing gets shallow. Um, their pulses are, are okay, and they tend to have a, a pretty rapid heart, heartbeat. So what we do, as I said, we give them simple sugar. These are some examples of things that you can do. They sell stuff in the store, in the, in the drugstore uh, that you can use, but I've found that these, seems to, these things seem to work just as well. There's a little, one, one thing that some people carry around is the cake frosting that you use for um, decorating. You know, you write happy birthday and you squeeze it out. Well, you can carry one of those and, and click, and they're, sometimes they're cheaper than the stuff that they sell in the drugstore that's ex actually the same stuff without the food coloring in it. Um, or even a lifesaver, anything that's got some, some sugar. So you then want to follow that. After that, then you want to give them something that's a little more complex, cracker, piece of bread, some peanut butter, uh, milk, wait a little bit, and then they can eat a regular they should then eat a regular um, meal. And again, don't worry about over-treating. If you're giving too, don't worry, because some people, oh, they're diabetic, they can't have sugar, is often the, the, the layperson's viewpoint of diabetes. Oh, you can't have any sugar. And so sometimes treatment gets delayed, or people are very reluctant to give the simple sugars because they think it's somehow very dangerous for them. But you have to understand that the hypoglycemia, if you have these symptoms, that hypoglycemia is more dangerous. Now, if you're in a hospital setting, you can, you, and you have access to the glucometer, you can check them. But if you're absolutely sure that they're showing you the signs of hypoglycemia, you can go ahead and give them the, go ahead and give them the simple sugar. But generally, if you have the opportunity to assess it first, you know, go, go ahead and do that. But when, a lot of times, you, that can take too much time, especially if they're, if they're showing um, uh, some of these uh, more uh, serious uh, neurologic effects, like not being able to talk to you. You probably should just go ahead and give them the simple sugar and then check. Hyperglycemia, you have fatigue, blurred vision, you also have tachycardia, you also get deep, rapid breathing. Remember, why, why is that? It's called Kussmaul breathing. Why, why are you doing that? Right, you're trying to put, increase the base buffer in your bloodstream, and so you're, so you're, you're uh, breathing. Pulses tend to be weak in a hyperglycemia, where they tend to be full in, the, in hypoglycemia. Um, skin will be dry and, and flushed. Um, what do you need to do? Well, if it's mild, uh, just, some, just some exercise and, and small amounts of insulin sometimes will be uh, just enough. We talked about DKA, where you have to start worrying more about fluids. Probably not a bad idea, anybody who's showing signs of hyperglycemia, to have them drink because they are probably getting dehydrated. They're already drawing fluid out of the interstitial spaces. So giving them something to drink is probably not a bad idea. Um, you don't want to be giving them Gatorade or anything with sugar in it. That's the last thing they, they need. Uh, and, of course, the physicians will prescribe um, some insulin. But again, hyperglycemia, while, while it can progress to DKA, which itself can be trouble because of the acidosis, if it gets too severe, it can be hard to correct. And when you're talking about short-term, hyper, hyperglycemia is less dangerous than hypoglycemia. So always, always remember that. So if you're going to error, 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 
do it on the side of, of uh, giving too much sugar than, than, with, than withholding it. So you, what you never want to do is have somebody who, who is showing hype, signs of hypoglycemia and then withhold the sugar. All right, rapid breathing is associated with hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia. Ninety-five percent chose hyperglycemia, and that is right. Okay. One of the things to do for a test is take a look in your in your book. There's a chart that shows hyperglycemic signs and symptoms, hypoglycemic signs and symptoms. Take a look at those two. Make sure you can distinguish. Look at the things that are similar and different about the things. Whenever you're studying for a nursing test and you get two things like hyper, tachycardia, bradycardia, or whatever it is, say, okay, what's the difference between those two things? How do I recognize those two things? So hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia. Recon you know, how would I recognize the difference? Because it's very common you're going to get a test question that's asking you, can you recognize that some, what's, what's going on with, uh, with your patients? The Lewis, I know there's one. There might be one, I can't remember offhand if there's one in Ball and Bindler, but I think there is. Okay, so, you know, and, and when you look at the different, you look at different charts, you might find some variance in the sign, some of the signs and symptoms, but generally I tried to give you the ones that you're most commonly, commonly going to, to see. Um, did I put... I have these little hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia handouts. Did I put those on Blackboard for you? I think I did. I thought I did. Did I? Did anybody check? Did anybody check on Blackboard? I don't think so. Okay, I'll try to put those up. These are these are uh, handouts actually that we give to um, give to patients, and uh, so I'll try to get get some some of these for you. Um, I'll pass them around. You can take a look. And what they do is little charts that you can put up. Uh, if, you're, if you're working in any settings, like school nurse settings or community settings, where you have uh, folks with diabetes, it's probably not a bad idea to even post those somewhere so that other people would know uh, that if they encountered somebody uh, with these signs and symptoms, they might help them be able to identify them and know what to do. Um, these are aimed as... as um, actually for that kind of use that you would put them on a wall and help and help people recognize them. Some of the other complications that have come from long-term hyperglycemia, too many instances in your life of hyperglycemia uh, are alterations in things that affect microcirculation. Uh, arthrosclerosis, arteriosclerosis, uh, much more common. Uh, we talked. We we talked at the very beginning about uh, how many you know two and a half times more uh, common. Um, you also see abnormalities with platelets, red cells, clotting factors, uh, greater stroke risk. Coronary art heart artery disease is the most common cause of death in folks with diabetes. They're not dying from hyperglycemia. They're not dying from hypoglycemia. They're not dying from the amputations that they're, that they're getting. It's the, they're, they're dying from heart attacks and strokes. 
if on top of your type 2 diabetes, you're smoking and overweight, too, that's also going to uh, add to your, to your risks. And so if you can just do these two things, uh, reduce, your, reduce your weight, maintain a good diet, and not smoke, you can greatly increase your chances of not having these problems, and you will approach more of the general population risk for those problems. Retinopathy, and I've got some pictures for you to, to show it. What they have found, in, uh, at least in, in currently in the elderly, 99% uh, of folks with type 1 diabetes have some kind of retinopathy, and 60% of type 2 have some kind of ret retinopathy. Um, I think these numbers are going to go way down for the type 1 because we're so much better at managing. Remember I was telling you that most of the elderly today, remember, didn't have access to bl blood glucose monitoring monitors until about at the earliest, at the latest, 20 years ago, and some didn't get them until maybe 10 years ago. So they went through most of their lives managing their blood glucose by checking their urine or just sort of guessing. Or like my uncle who died at a young age who decided that he would eat and say, oh, that feels like about three units, and then give himself that. And, oh, I'll have another piece of pie, and then give himself some more. And uh, he didn't live very long. Um, so I think those now, but he didn't have glucon. This was this was 30 years ago. He didn't ha he didn't have uh, ability to really check himself very well. So I don't think you're going to see that as much. Uh, nephropathies, uh, problems, uh, the people ending up on dialysis and things like that because of damage to the to the kidneys. Uh, peripheral vessel occlusions, very similar to some of the things we see with sickle cell disease, uh, where you get sequestration and um, uh, occlusions, and of course, if these occlusions occur in the heart or in the brain, uh, that causes problems. So th the key is, over and over, and I've been saying it over and over again, but it's true, is just maintaining the blood glucose levels, and that goes for type 1 and type 2. Stay out of hyperglycemia, and you'll be, you'll be much better, better off later in life. And then, of course, this is very difficult to even talk about with teenagers. When you're talking about kids, None of this stuff really, with type, kids with type 1, none of this is really going to make much seem, seem very relevant to them because none of these things are really going to happen until they're much, much older. Even, if, even no matter how bad they take care of themselves, they're generally not going to see these kind of things until they're much older. So it's really hard to, uh, to talk about. The one thing that does, I have been able to get through is with teenage boys and you talk about impotence. And you say, you know, that, that gets them where they live. So, um, I saw a guy, he had a, he had a college class on uh, video, game, uh, video game design, and he said, he told the students that there was only two things they couldn't design a game for. That was any that involved pornography or violence. He said all his 19-year-old boys, the male students, after they were stumped, <laughs> they didn't know what kind of game to design once he gave those two, uh, two things. Here's a uh, look, looking in the eye of somebody with, with a diabetic retin retinopathy, uh, and you can see these little blotches, there's little hemorrhages, little bleeding. Uh, these little yellow spots are exudates. There's aneurysms where, where bleeding will occur. Um, it doesn't show up as well on this slide, but if you can get it, if you can see some, some higher quality. Um, photographs. You'll see that the, the retina of somebody who, who has uh, had 
uh, a lot of instance, instances of, of hyperglycemia through their life, you will see it in their, in their retinas. And so blindness uh, will occur, or at least a very severely curtailed vision. They, they may not lose, they won't, things won't go black for them, but they'll have a very difficult time um, seeing clearly. Come on, there we go. Uh, some other problems are neuropathies, which neuropathy means what? What's neuropathy mean? Break it down. Neuropathy. Anybody? What's neuropathy mean? Jen? No, no. Neuropathy. What's noro? What's the prefix noro? Disease. Uh, okay. Which 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 one is disease? Pathy. Pathy is disease. Noro can include the brain, but more specific, more generally, it's the nervous system. So nervous system disease. Neuropathy. If I said myopathy, what would that be? Myopathy, M-Y-O-pathy, muscle disease, right. A lot of times you might see physicians use these terms, neuropathy, myopathy, um, nephropathy, or whatever. And it just means because they don't have a specific name for the disease, they just give it a general term like that, and it sounds very official, but it actually doesn't mean anything. It just means that there's a, a disease of the nerves. Okay, so you have somatic nerves, you have visceral nerves, and the somatic nerves... Um, are those those that that spread out that go down your arms, go down your go down your legs, right? So you, people will have numbness, headaches, eye pain, foot drops, loss of sensation. So people with the, because of the neuropathy, for example, might injure themselves. Let's say they're walking and they have shoes that don't fit right, uh, and they're getting they're they're getting blisters, bleeding. They don't know it. They don't realize it. So one of the things, if you have somebody who has neuropathies in their feet, they have to be very, very careful about the shoes they buy. They might need to go to a podiatrist to get, to get fitted. Podiatrists even have special shoes that will, that will conform and help them to fit, fit right, not too tight anywhere. Um, they're not the best looking, but they, will, they can prevent you from having complications. So... You have to realize then that a lot of people are going to have complications that occur from the damage to the to the nerves. The other thing that can happen is is that the uh, visceral, the viscera, is what? That's uh, your guts, right? Everything that's in deep inside, and because they can affect some of those some of the, the uh, uh, cranial nerves, you start to see things like sweating, pupil changes, constipation. Um, Neurovascular changes where people are having, having problems with, with uh, it affects their circulation, uh, and as I told you, impotence. And again, the only, the only thing that you can do is try to prevent it by maintaining as throughout your lifetime good uh, uh, glucose levels. Uh, here's some things with foot, foot complications. 
Now these are sec secondary to the circulatory problems that can occur and also the, the nerve damage. As I said, people can get, can get um, uh, an ulcer, for example, that they don't feel because of the nerve problem. But then because of the problems with the circulation that go along with it, that then isn't able to heal. So the normally where you would get a little ulcer, you would feel the pain, you would stay off of it, and because you, ha you don't have healing problems, it would get better eventually. The problem is, is that even if they do keep the pressure off, the ulcers may not heal. And then these get infected, gangrene sets in, and then they end up losing. This fellow here lost his toes. And that's usually how it works. They start taking off little bits of you. So you start losing a toe, and then maybe a foot, and then you're up to the knee. And, and uh, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of elderly folks with diabetes, they just keep saying, you know, they keep losing, losing little bits of them. And it usually starts in the, in the legs. Um, it's really important uh, for elderly folks with diabetes uh, to have a podiatrist. Uh, a lot of podiatrists that I know um, will make visits to, to uh, local nursing homes and assisted living centers um, because they know a lot about how to, how to monitor for these uh, effects, how to take care of nails is real important. You don't just want to take your good old Rite Aid nail clippers and start hacking away or taking scissors to your, to your, to your nails. Uh, when you're like this. It has, you have to, you want to do it after a bath, for example. They need to be cut straight across. A lot of people, because it, their, their feet are so fragile that they really shouldn't be cutting their nails at all and probably should go to a podiatrist uh, for it. So when you're taking care of any of your elderly patients with, with diabetes, make sure that you spend a little bit of time looking at their feet, looking at the color, looking at the circulation. Uh, their, their reflexes pulse, how does, the skin, how does the skin look, and also talk to them about how they take care of themselves. Uh, cutting the nails, taking care of their, uh, and, and what kind of shoes they wear, making sure that they understand, like if they go for long walks, they may not realize the damage that's being done to their feet. Doesn't mean they can't walk, it just means that they need to stop and, and actually inspect their own feet periodically to see how they're doing. And if they're bad, they need to stop, they'll need to stop walking. They also need to be in the habit of checking their own feet. A lot of us are not in the habit of checking our feet. We don't grow up looking at our feet every day that much. And they need, they need to be. Uh, I told you about the importance of, of um, shoe selection. Uh, and also just doing things that help with circulation. You don't want to be sitting in, in with, the, with your knees um, bent, bent a lot or sitting on your knees or in any kind of weird positions for a long time, things that are gonna, going to um, hurt circulation. Um, folks are also at greater risk for, for infections. And the weird thing is nobody exactly knows why because even though diabetes doesn't really uh, make people's uh, white counts go lower, they do seem to have, have greater risks. Uh, it's thought that it might have to do somewhat with, uh, with the um, hyperglycemia, might be more conducive to some bacterial growth, and may somehow interferes with the immune, immune response. 
Uh, some of the things that you're more likely to see is folks with diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, more likely to have nail infections, osteomyelitis, uh, gum disease, gingivitis, UTIs, yeast infections. So these are things that are often associated with um, like having UTIs and yeast infections, you can probably imagine having, having higher sugar levels. All right. Let's ask one, we're gonna ask one more question and then we'll stop for the day. The elderly person with diabetes should? Okay, everybody voted. Come on. There we go. 100%. All right. So you've been paying attention. Very, very good. All right. I have term papers to hand out. I see Megan's here. So my two groups, we have, we have term papers. I guess everybody else, it's going to be Wednesday, or you might want to go up. Is anybody else upstairs that, that you saw? All right. So we'll see you on Wednesday. Now, we're going to be, we're going to be done um, diabetes, and we're going to